Hello there, welcome to the HSK Student Pod. This is Richard, your host from the HSK EdTech team. Thank you for joining us on episode 10 of the HSK Student Pod. It's always a pleasure to have you as one of our listeners. I hope you are all settled in now in the new academic year, especially our new students and staff. Hope you now know how to get around the HSK building. Now, I actually know getting around the HSK building is one of the challenges for many new staff and students. I wonder where our beautiful summer sunshine and flowers have gone, leaving us with trees that are shedding off all their leaves to the ground. I'm sure all of us have started to feel the winter temperatures as soon as you get out of the house in the morning. I think it's one definite sign that our special winter is on its way and I think it's just next door. Are you ready for the winter season? As usual, I am not letting you down. I have special guests who are going to share wonderful messages with us and I hope you enjoy this episode. First, we have got an introduction message from Julie Fuller, our Associate Dean for Learning and Teaching and Student Experience. I now hand you over to Julie. So thank you, Richard, and uh, hello to everybody out there listening. Uh, Lovely now to be able to do uh, an introduction to episode 10 of our podcast. I can't believe we've managed to do 10 so far. Uh, And again, lots of interesting content for you uh, this time. I just wanted to say, as we now come to sort of midterm, really, well into the uh, early winter months now, we've got Halloween's out the way, November's uh, the 5th's out the way. So all the fireworks have almost finished going off. Uh, and uh, many of us are now thinking towards um, the vacation, the winter vacation break. Um, but between now and then, there's lots of work to be done. A lot of you are starting on assessments. Uh, for some of you, that's the first assessment. So good luck with those. For others, it's uh, your transitional assessments in your second, third year or your postgraduate years. Um, so it's a very busy time for everyone. Um, I'm not going to share any particular news with you uh, this month about changes, but more of a personal story, really, about my dog. So. A few of you might know that I have a little Jack Russell called Farley. Uh, he's a very feisty little dog. He's a rescue dog. He's about, um, he's about eight years old. Um, and uh, the reason I'm sharing the story with you, because uh, he really got me to think about communication, which is something that all of you do at some point in your coursework and in your practice. You focus on the importance of good communication. Um, so where I'm going with this story is that my little dog, unfortunately, was attacked in a park last week by a puppy uh, and another slightly bigger dog. So those two dogs were out together with their owner and this puppy was very insistent on playing with my dog who wasn't particularly interested being a slightly older boy Um, and he wanted to just get on and get home, I think. But the puppy was very insistent and uh, in the end, um, it had a little bit of a go. My dog got a little bit upset, my little Jack Russell Farley. He was fighting back and kind of really saying, I really don't want to play, I want to get home. And then the other dog piled in and so there's three dogs And this little puppy managed to latch himself onto the side of my dog's belly. Um, And of course, then nobody could get him off. And he was a very persistent little chap. Uh, And in the end, his owner tried to pull him. I wasn't there, thank goodness. Uh, But uh, the owner tried to pull him off. And of course, the little puppy's jaws clamped tightly shut uh, to my dog's side. And uh, as they pulled him, of course, it tore through his skin. So eventually they get the little dog off and my husband walks my dog home who is shaking the poor little thing and bleeding. He's got two big uh, holes, big in relation to the fact that he's a small dog. So probably uh, about three centimetres across diameter. Um, Tears in his skin and a puncture wound as well right under his 
right under one of his forelegs in his armpit. So he's a bit blooded and a bit messy, this poor dog. It's on Halloween this happens. Um, so here we are. We've got the dog wrapped up in a blanket, which is uh, streaked with blood. So he looks like his own little Halloween dress up, he does, um, with all this blood all over the blanket. And we have to dash him to the vets. Um, and we get into the vets and uh, the vet is lovely. The dog's very frightened, very shaking. Uh, the vet though looks after uh, after him very well and says it's quite late in the evening so gives him some painkillers and says bring him back in the morning for some sutures so that's what we did first thing next morning we get him up to the surgery and he has sedation and sutures uh, and he's all stitched up nicely and cleaned up and I go to pick him up three or four hours later um, but the thing is he's still looking very shocked so surgery is fine suture is fine dog is still not communicating Dog, I would say, is not talking to us. In fact, he's not talking to anyone. Now, I know dogs don't talk anyway, but there's a way of communicating, isn't there, that's, um, that even an animal that doesn't have a voice um, communicates their needs, really. And he just wasn't looking at us. He'd got his head hung down and uh, he was kind of hunched up and wouldn't make any eye contact with us. Um, and when people phoned over the next day or so, everyone said, how's Farley? How's he doing? How's your little dog? And I said, well, he's kind of okay. The wound's all right. And some of you might know that wound care is my specialty background. So I'm always particularly interested in how wounds are doing. Got some photos. Um, I said, his wounds are okay, but he's not. You know, he's just not talking to us. Um, and it really made me think as this poor little chap couldn't really look us in the eye. I didn't respond to his name wasn't doing what he normally does, which is dash to the door to say hello when you get home or follow you around the house if he thinks food's in the offing. But he was just really staying in his little bed and keeping very still. And it just really made me think about communication and how much we rely on other people and, in this case, other animals to communicate their needs to us. And when suddenly they can't, then it suddenly made it very difficult because I didn't understand what he wanted and I couldn't guess how he was feeling. Of course, he couldn't articulate it. And had he been well, he'd normally be able to let me know that he's hungry or needs to go out to the toilet or wants to go and play with his ball. But all of that had kind of gone and it felt really difficult then um, in trying to, trying to communicate with him and getting nothing back made me realise just how hard it is when somebody lose their communication skills and how much we rely on those non-verbal um, skills. Yes, he doesn't have a voice, but he has all these other ways of communicating his needs at a dog level. And without that, it suddenly felt, I really missed him. And it felt, we all felt the house was very quiet uh, without his normal kind of boisterous behaviour, I guess, and his normal way of communicating with us. So um, to pardon the pun, I'm going to say it gave me pause for thought. It did give me pause for thought, uh, but it really made me think about those kind of verbal, non-verbal communication skills that we all rely on with each other. And I'm pleased to say that he's, he's absolutely back now talking with us um, and he's communicating back, looking us in the eye and uh, eating well, sutures all nicely healed up and he's back to his normal self. So fortunately for us, communication has been restored fully. Um, but as I say, something to think about really in terms of uh, how we rely on the different means of communication, how important it is, even if it's just you and your animal, um, but translate that to your patients and your service users. And of course, it takes on a whole different meaning. That's it really from me and from Farley. Enjoy the rest of the podcast uh, and I look forward to hearing from you and speaking to you in December. 
Thanks, Judy, for the touching introduction message you have given us. I'm sure all our listeners have been touched by your beautiful message. Indeed, you have left us all reflecting on the importance of communication when we are informing others of our needs. We wish Farley our good recovery. For this monthly student success stories, we have our guests, Uche and Leondas, third-year students on the Radiography and Diagnostic Imaging Program. Uche and Leondas are going to share with us their elective experience. I now hand you over to Julie, who had the opportunity of meeting and interviewing Uche and Leondas. Thank you, Richard. Right, I'm really pleased today to be joined uh, by Uche Inequa and Leonidas Antonio, uh, both from Diagnostic Imaging Programme. Uh, that's the Radiography and Imaging Programme, undergraduate programme here. Uh, and both going to talk about their different experiences uh, during their elective placement, which was last year. So they're now just going into their third year. You've already started your third year, haven't you? Uh, but this happened in your second year. But both really interesting electives, both in quite different places uh, and an awful lot, I think, to learn from your experiences. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with you, uh, Uche, and ask you, you went to Peru. Yes, I do. Um, so I'm going to start by asking you why you chose to go to Peru. I chose to go to Peru because um, I suppose it's something really personal I wanted to do because I intend to work in the developing world in the future. I just wanted to experience what it feels like or what, how they get things done over there. And it was quite an experience for me. Um, I think we are very lucky to have everything here and we have enough and to spare. Over there, they have very little or next to nothing. The x-ray procedure there is still very, very basic. They still use the dark rooms. We still have to use films. We have to develop it using chemicals. It was a complete step back in time for me. But that's where the lectures come in, I would imagine, yeah. the lectures in pace, because I knew that, I hadn't, even though I hadn't seen it in practice, I understood the principle that the exposure factor of x-rays really matters. Because what used to happen is when they take an exposure, it's sometimes either too white or too dark and they had to adjust. So I saw all those principles in practice. Um, and very funny things happened while I was there as well, because um, um, in my haste to get into the dark room one day, I accidentally, without knowing, because again, they speak Spanish and my Spanish is not too nice. So <laughs> I, 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 went, I went straight into the room without knocking and then they had exposed some films that they wanted to develop and um, I got the whole thing all fogged up in all turned black and it wasn't very nice. But that was one of those experiences. But the most crucial thing I took away from, from my journey to Peru was how confident they were with the little things that they did the radiographers are very experienced. They did a lot with their basic theme and everything else. They actually don't have gowns there for their patients. They don't have a lot. I had to do um, help assist in um, colonic examination of a patient with the end of a bag in my hand, and I had to manually you know, get so all you that just stood down. there and held it in your hand I held and, it and delivered I, the I enema. delivered it. Was that barium or you just barium, did? Okay, barium so, enema. Yeah. And that was, that was you know, I, because I hadn't done it before here and, yeah. and to do it the way that I was doing it was really um, an experience. Um, but then 
they used whatever little resources they had to get the images that they wanted and surprisingly very good quality diagnostic images because that assisted their surgeons immeasurably. They do every type of procedure we do here. I saw DHS, I saw hip replacement, I saw knee replacement, and it was all down to like basic x-raying at the end of the day. So, And is that in, um, is that a, so that's a public hospital? It's a public public hospital, hospital. And so how do uh, in Peru, how do people access healthcare then? They, they, do, do most people have to go to a public hospital yeah, and wait their turn? Absolutely. Uh, most people had to co- go to public hospitals because there are not a lot of very rich people around there. There are modern facilities. I mean, if you can afford it, there are private hospitals as well, mm. where I was told that the majority of the people have to use government hospitals and these are subsidized and that's all they've got. Um, you know, I, as I said earlier in our previous discussions, um, they probably will need some sort of assistance um, because we do have a lot and to spare. And even if it's by way of hospital gowns or maybe um, gloves, so here, masks. In, so here in this country, yeah. you see that we have a lot of things, gowns, gloves, yes. and you... I, I think you said to me earlier that um, if there were a way of things that we don't use or don't need or... Yeah you know, the surplus or things that are wasted could actually be going to Absolute a country like Absolutely, like that, because they will, they will appreciate it because they don't have it. Yeah, okay, thank you. I'm sure, we're, I'm sure we'll come back to you. Let me ask uh, Leonidas then, you, you went to Mexico. So why, same question to you, why Mexico? So I chose Mexico because I come, I come from a very small island in the Mediterranean Sea, so we okay. cannot have a similar... Uh, environment, I thought. Thought. I thought. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That's completely different. (laughs) Uh, It's just I wanted to challenge my my skills, my knowledge. I wanted Mm -hmm. to gain other knowledge apart from here. So Um, you didn't know anyone else that had been to Mexico? You just, you stuck a pin in the map and you said, Mexico, (laughs) here I come. Yeah, I just wanted to challenge myself really into my, to see how the people practicing the same in my same profession as my as me. Yeah. Um, and do you speak? I mean, Ucha said you said your Spanish wasn't very good. It wasn't I'm good not at sure all. if no. you were just it wasn't <laughs> good at all. So, so, so did did you speak? Could you could you? I tried to. You? Okay. <laughs> Combine with some body language. Yes. And some, yeah. Because yes. this is the basic thing, isn't it? You go yes. to another country, you're going to be able to communicate. Absolutely. You know, even even at a basic level. So brave step to go. Yeah, it was quite. Uh, yeah, we kind of managed, but yeah. the it kind of made me feel more appreciative of what I've been given so far mm. here. It helps you open up to other world. I suppose it's it's other ways of learning, but it's also yeah. it's a global perspective, isn't it? You're, yeah. You know, we're a relatively small island here, aren't yes, we? And we see yes. things done in one way, yeah. but I think you're both saying, but that's not the only way, and no. there are other countries who don't have the same resources that we have uh, and the same, you know, the health needs. But you d- you described, Uche, about, you know, dark rooms still yes. being used, yes. and, <laughs> uh, despite you opening the doors on them in the middle of them yeah. developing. I'm sure they haven't <laughs> forgotten that. But what were there differences that you saw then, Leonidas, in, uh, you know, in terms of practice? What were they doing yeah. that was different to here? So um, even though we pretty much used the same uh, machines, they will still need to produce films, not yeah. in dark rooms. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so but they yeah. still needed to produce films. Yeah. Um, 
the way they were handling the situation and, the, and each patient was completely different of what I've been told here, okay. which okay. that was where so it, it was it, challenging. Is that, was that the techniques were different? Some of the techniques were different. Yeah. Some of the way there was uh, occurring, uh, obtaining some of the projects were completely different. Okay. And uh, just here we learned to focus on the patient and what the patient needs yeah. Making the patient in the center of care where there is pretty much trying to... I can almost hear in your voice, you're being very respectful, I think. Yes. yes. Things are done in different countries. Yes. The, the context is different. Culture is different. Resources are different. Aren't there different ways of doing things? But but you saying that you feel we're very patient-focused we, here. We have stricter yes. yeah. rules in terms of patient you know, engagement and how yeah. we, we, we treat patients here than, yeah. than out there. Yeah. Definitely I saw that because um, um, you cannot get away with, you know, getting somebody naked in the examination okay. room. Yeah. Okay. Is yeah. that something you saw? Yes. Yeah. yes. So, so dignity wasn't that, always Yeah, well that's the thing. Respected. And that is really because, well, they don't have hospital gowns and yeah. the yeah. examination had to be done. And they can only use what they have. So I, I could understand that bit. And I suppose yeah. the, the patients also understood. But, um, well, I suppose looking at it purely from the perspective of someone who's been here, who is used to medical services over here, um, we take gowns for granted. Yeah, we and we, yeah, we, we, we have do. to change patients and yeah. do all of that for but there. They don't have it, so they just walk in. You know, if it, requires you taking off your yeah. shirt or your gown or your pants you just do and it and that's what kind of patients yeah. are used to yes do. i feel and like even personal to... protection like gloves mm. something mm. Yes. so simple that yeah. every hospital has it yeah is they not don't. they don't and you it's said so uh, you you i think you said to me earlier about people sort of sitting in corridors and and yes with their food tray was it on their laps on their laps and, and all their Medical history is stuck behind the okay, wall. Okay, so they're kind of their notes and their X-ray would just be behind them, and they'd be waiting. Is that waiting to go into treatment or just waiting? Waiting, waiting in really. The, the thing okay. is, if there was not something major was going on, no one would. would so so really, that's just where they the corridor is yeah. a place for patients to be waiting because or sitting or actually have um, available beds wow okay so, so that is actually because okay. there weren't beds yeah mm. just crowded hospital i ever saw and how can i ask you how how long were you there how, how so long i've been you there for? for three weeks three weeks same same mine was two weeks two weeks yeah okay. i was there for two weeks how yeah. long do you think it would have taken if at all for you to have just got used to that and maybe just, just, it would have become your normal as well, do you think? <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, I suppose the more you stay within a culture yes. and environment, you probably, the shock factor yeah. cannot recede. You know, the first time I went in there and saw people stripping completely and I'm thinking, God, what is going on here? And yeah. then over time, you kind of get used to it, to yeah. the shock factor, and then you begin to adapt and you begin to understand why they do what they do the yeah. way they do it because you know i mean they don't have it it's just yeah. that's that's it. just really you yeah. know when you describe it to me patient being left naked uh that, that it makes me feel shocked you know my initial thought is quite shock yeah. but as you as you've explained it then that that sense that you would adjust over time and yeah. because this is what they have and this is what yeah. they're working with so it, it sounds like a very powerful learning experience for both of you even for me i had a similar situation with um 
um, with children, uh, sending them having CT scans over their head, for their head basically. Okay. And I found that quite um, too much, considering radiation and also pay the children's lives. So, so the children were having, just explain that to me again as a non-diagnostic radiographer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the children were having scans of their head because of um, epilepsy, okay. which they consider quite um, an excessive approach okay, to... Okay, so we wouldn't... So a scan for epilepsy, that would we wouldn't like do that here? The, it would be our last resort. Okay. Okay. Whereas there it might be it a fairly first, first standard and, uh, procedure. I asked why, and they mm. told me that it's because uh, CT was the only thing available at that time. Okay. So I, then I realised why it was and why they went with that sort of treatment yeah. and yeah. diagnosis. So their decision making had to be different, different because their yeah. circumstances yeah. were different. Where if if it was here, children would have gone first to MRI, which is less it's more safety less compared, compared yeah. to radiation. No, in terms of what I've learned, I mean in, in Peru they have if you're interested in chest pathologies that is where you see everything that is being taught in the textbook from because yes. they have a lot of tuberculosis, yeah. emphysema, all those things, yeah. all those chest pathologies. And, you know, and they come in by the truckload. When I mean by the truckload, once when you open the door, guaranteed that 90% of people that are coming for x-rays have some sort of chest pathology. Okay. Mm. So the chest pathologies so, are the sort of the everyday bread and butter of the is, use. Yeah. This Every is what people day, are coming from. It's just them um, and they warn before you go there, you know, they, they tell us to make sure you buy your mask, okay. proper surgical mask. You had your vaccinations yeah, before. You had your vaccination and everything yeah. because oh, um, it's, um, they have a lot of um, TB and all those okay. things. But mm-hmm. yeah, it was interesting. <laughs> so you also, so... I suppose you're, of course, learning about the wider health, the state of the health of the nation, aren't you? Yes, you know, because yes. you're, you're saying it's not just you in what's happening in the imaging unit and the equipment yeah. they use and how mm-hmm. they work, but you're actually seeing then the disease prevalence, uh, you know, the, the, the local population yes. you're experiencing, which again yes. is very different to the UK. So yes. you're learning also about those pathologies yes, and absolutely. presentations. Yes. So that's... Um, difficult for that country that inequity isn't it mm-hmm. from your point yes. of view they're a great learning experience yes. um, yeah yeah and, and similar in for mexico me, similar for me i've i've seen a textbook case that i've never seen before yeah and i couldn't even imagine seeing them yeah and but for them it's pretty much it's so common by even mentioning them you they were like oh this is people here so they do do have the kind this kind of yeah disease pathologies yeah. So whereas you were surprised, I they were su- kind of, this is just yeah, normal Yeah, that's for us. so normal yeah. for us. Okay, so would you recommend then, both of you, that other people do an elective? Yeah. 100%. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. 100%. It's, it's, um, you, you need to take yourself away from, from your comfort zone. Exactly. And then do something totally out of this world because I suppose at the end of the day, um, it's your life to live and it's an experience that you will never forget and it will probably live with you for the rest of your life (laughs) yeah same for both of you exactly and gain all this new experience and it's all for you really and how to improve and that how is then that improvement you make helps other people which in that case is our patient yeah yeah that that seems a really good reason for doing it both for personal development but also because it was helping your practice and your patients so you definitely recommend it to others 
Um, I must ask you then, finally, just if you both of you got a chance to travel in the country, did you? Did you? Yeah, I did. Yes, yeah. I did. Yeah. 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 What was the best thing? What, what was the, what was the best thing about Peru? Um, Why they, else should we go there? They have a lot of historical sites in Machu Picchu yeah. and um, what's the other place? Machu Picchu and. Aliente Caliente and... Um, so the very ancient, the ancient civilizations. Yes, 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 they've got wow. plenty of those, okay. so it's really interesting. Okay, and for Mexico, here, yeah? I feel like that three weeks was nothing compared <laughs> yeah. to exploring. and But I had the chance, actually. You did to, get a little chance. Yeah, too. I had the chance to see an amazing place I've never seen before. There some places called cenotes, where it's, it's like um, underground caves, each one different than the others. Yeah. Enormous ones. Yeah. There was so numbers of them yeah. so it sounds like both of you would go back and visit if you could yes oh yes 100% it's brilliant thank you so much for sharing that I and mean, they both the electives sound absolutely fascinating you've given really good reasons why other students should consider stretching themselves out of the comfort zone i think yeah, you said yeah. uche so um my thanks to both of you for sharing that that's brilliant thank you and good thank luck you. in your final year yeah, thank, thank you very much that's a fantastic message from hoche leondas and julie uche and leondas thank you very much for coming to share with our listeners your amazing elective experience in peru and mexico i'm sure our listeners have enjoyed your elective experience message especially those students who are now deciding on where to do the elective. We wish you good luck in your final year, which I know is going to be very busy, but I'm actually confident you'll come out as successful HSK graduates. Don't forget to thank Julie for interviewing Uche and Leonas. We always appreciate the time you take out of your very busy schedules to meet and interview our guests. Thanks, Julie. This is to all HSK StudentPod listeners. We are always keen to hear first-hand accounts from HSK students about your work, your experiences, your challenges and success. Please, do get in touch if you've got a message you would want to share with our listeners. One of the things the HSK Student Board is trying to promote is to help build the HSK staff student community. Being in a big school such as the HSK, that is the School of Health and Social Care, just to make sure our new listeners know what I'm referring to, a lot goes on and I'm sure many students and staff have experienced challenges or tough moments. When under such a situation, you often see yourself as the unlucky person and you may not know or you may not realize someone else may have a solution to overcome that challenge you may be facing. Aiden Mitchell, a member of the HSK tech team, had an opportunity to go around HSK and briefly asked a few random students the following question. What challenge have you ever faced and how did you overcome it? These were the responses from the students. Um, so the challenges I find are um Coming to university with two children, one's got complex asthma and one suffers with anxiety. Um, so I always plan ahead and get, make sure I do my work um, in advance. So if something goes wrong and I have a poorly child, then I haven't got a stress that I'm going to be meeting deadlines and not getting the work done. I found it a bit challenging in third year now, struggling with the work-life balance, making sure that 
um, I hand in assignments on time and also do work um, and still have it to a good standard. So I found that making tutorials with lecturers is really helpful because they help you to ease through that workload and show you, point you in the right direction so that you can get through it and feel like you're actually achieving um, your goals. So the challenge I faced as being a new student at the university was actually finding my way around the university, knowing where the levels, lower levels, you know, finding the right building um, and overcoming it. I used the apps that helped me, they navigated me and then I gradually gained confidence really with learning my way around, asked people as well. Um, and then, yeah, just, just built my confidence up that way, really, by using what was available. My placement was too far for me to travel, and I overcame it by getting my tutor involved, and they ended up changing my placement. Um, something that we found um, hard to overcome was um, revising for OSCEs. Um, this because it's like you've got to revise four different scenarios and you never know what you're going to get. When we're doing the OSCEs, the one thing that helped me overcome and make me pass it was listening to um, the tutors. They were a very great help and just going in for all the tutorials, that was a really good help. Um, another thing of, with dealing with the OSCEs is that you have to do a lot of reading around the topic areas. So make sure that you do plenty reading and that you understand what you're reading, basically, be able to deal with it. Um, one of the things I found that really helps in such daunting situations is the tutors. They help quite a lot. I'm going for like the tutorials. They really, really do help a lot. So for me, my advice is to listen to all the, the tutors and just to listen to everything that they say because everything that they say is mostly what comes out anyway. For this month's professional spotlight, we have Radhika Hardy from the HSK Midwifery team. Radhika is going to share with us a message on how she has got where she is, a message she calls My Midwifery Journey. This is another opportunity a member of the HSK staff student community to share a message with us showing some challenges first and how they have overcome them. I now hand you over to Julie who had the opportunity of meeting and interviewing Radhika. Okay, thank you so much, Richard. Uh, and, and as you say, yes, I'm really pleased to welcome today uh, Radhika Hardyal, um, who's with us to talk a little bit about her journey, which I think will relate to lots of people listening. Um, but Radhika at the moment is a senior lecturer with us in midwifery. She's also one of our admissions tutors, both for the three-year midwifery programme and the shorter midwifery programme. And she's also a doctoral student. Uh, and in a moment, I'm going to ask you what your doctorate is as well, um, because you're in the middle of your study now, I know. Uh, and then when we've done that, we, we're going to go back in time a bit, I think, and start with Radhika on, in the early days of her journey um, and bring us back up to date uh, as we are today. But let me start by asking you what your doctoral study is about. Okay. So I'm looking at critical illness in childbirth. I'm looking at the midwife's role and how we can improve maternity services for women who suffer um, severe maternal morbidity. Okay, I mean, that sounds like quite a complex subject. Is it, is it quantitative or qualitative? It's qualitative. Okay. So I'm, I want to interview women and their birth partners. I also want to do some focus group with midwives um, to find out their perspective. Wow, really interesting. And I take it there hasn't been very much work in that area There's before. not a lot of, there's very little qualitative uh, research on uh, critical illness and childbirth. We have a very good 
quantitative collection of data, but there's few qualitative studies. And I couldn't find any, or there's very limited, on those that look at midwives' views. So I felt that would be the that's you know, your unique sort of angle, is it? Yes. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay, that and, and you're how many years in? This is my fourth year. Oh, okay. So, um, okay. Yeah. So you're probably me. getting to the meaty part now, are you? Where you're going to start your data collection? Yes, I'm hoping to start Lovely. data collection after the summer. That's really exciting. Yeah. Okay, so this is this is you now, busy mm-hmm. academic. I know uh, uh, you have a busy job here. You're a doctoral student, which is that sort of already that's that's a, a, most of your day used up, I'm sure. Um, but I know you have a family. I know you have youngsters. So I imagine life is spinning quite a lot of different plates yes. for you. <laughs> but when we were talking earlier though you you were telling me that that, that story starts you know way back yeah. in the Caribbean uh, <laughs> so I thought it'd be really nice and really interesting for people mm-hmm. to hear a bit about your story from those early days and how you came to be from the Caribbean you came to be in the UK and how you got to be where you are today in terms of your professional practice mm-hmm. and who you are as a person. You know, the Radhika Hardy mm-hmm. I've got sitting in front of me now. But that story starts way back. So it starts yeah. off in the Caribbean then. Yeah, I can probably say I've got a 16-year-old daughter who's waiting for my GCSE results. Okay. And that prompted me to think back uh, when I was 16 and my dad went with me to collect my GCSE results. Um, in those times, you know, we, I'm from very humble beginnings. and. The plan was to uh, do well in my GCSEs and then get a job. Is this uh, your dad's plan? Or my your dad's plan. plan. <laughs> it's your dad's plan. I okay. didn't really have a plan. Okay. <laughs> I was just hoping to not disappoint. Yeah. And I had a, my English teacher at the time collected my results for me and waited to meet with my dad. Because I, I suppose he knew what the sort of um, cultural element was like and that. I may have had to not continue studying then. Okay. Um, and he advised my dad that I should do ALA okay. um, because my results were good. So are you saying, let me just make sure we understood this, are you saying that your teacher recognised that the expectation was you get your results, get out and start working, and, start and thought working. that maybe if he wasn't there to reinforce the yeah. importance of yeah. you being able to go on and study that that perhaps the family expectation would be you got your results off you go and get a job so your teacher stood there and he just wanted to check and make sure that dad and everyone knew you 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 know you could do more I feel that and I always think about him now and I always go back and I always credit him for that yeah because I feel like I wouldn't be here yeah um today if it wasn't for him but there were lots of other people along that journey as well mm-hmm. so he started that okay. um so I did go and do a levels and, and this is still that. in the Caribbean I'm like still it. in the Caribbean which, which island in the Caribbean so I'm from Trinidad and okay. Tobago wow. okay um, so immediately you say that and I, I feel sunshine, sunshine and flowers and burst flowers. into this little booth that we're in <laughs> yes is it really like that it is oh, it is yeah Um, 
it is beautiful and um and I do miss it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I went on to do A levels, I okay. did sciences. But again I knew that my dad um succumbed to me going on to do A levels, okay. but it meant that after A levels I definitely now need to go okay. and get a job. So your dad says, All right, okay, you can okay. do the A levels. I'll push a yeah. little bit more, but after that Radhika it's it's out there. Yeah, Maybe there will be working. no university okay. or tertiary education so I knew that I finished my final A level and walked out and in Trinidad in that year that I finished my A levels they started doing an associate degree in nursing in Trinidad it was the first year and that was um, subsidized by the government and it was bursaried so it meant that I would get the tertiary education without a financial cost okay. to my dad. Okay. And yes. I could maintain myself financially with the bursary I was getting. Yes. So and you wanted, you, you, you saw that as an opportunity. I saw that as an opportunity. I wanted to go further educationally, but yeah. without putting a burden on my parents yes. to continue educating yeah. me. And this provided the best opportunity okay. for me, I thought. Took that to my dad and he was very excited that I think he wanted me to have an education. I remember him saying, you know, it's all I can give you. I don't have yeah. anything else. Yeah. Um, but it's what he could afford at the time. Yeah. So this presented so an opportunity present- both for a career and an education, uh, but without that financial constraint that you, your family obviously felt yes. and your dad felt. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you so go and join this course. I too? joined this course. Most exciting time of my life. Yeah. Best thing I felt. Best career I could have entered into. Yeah. Loved every minute of it. My training, and then I practiced as a nurse uh, in Trinidad for four years. Um, then the opportunity presented itself for me to move to the UK because it was a UK-based course I did. Yes. So I could register with the um, United Kingdom. Uh, council. Yes, as it was then. As it so was it's now then. The it's NMC, now the NMC, but it used to be the UKCC. UKCC. So, so you could transfer your qualification over to, to practice here yes. in the UK. And in those days, uh, it sounds like a very long time ago. I'm not going to ask you when it was. <laughs> so in those days, um, the UK were looking, they were recruiting outside of the UK. Yeah. They had a shortage of nurses and they were recruiting outside. And they recruited in my hospital. I had enjoyed my training, but I wanted more. Yes. I wanted to specialize. I'd had four years' experience in nursing. And in Trinidad, to do any postgraduate course, you needed to have five years. And just that extra year felt like a bird, you know, it felt like a long time. So you were, you were ready. You were ready. I was they ready. came to the hospital, they were looking for people, and you were absolutely ready to, to take the next step. Yes. And my family wanted me to go because they wanted me to grow they wanted Mm. me to develop but it was a very very difficult time emotionally because I'm the only girl Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I had two younger brothers Mm. Um, but I made the decision to come and my family supported me in that Um, and the plan was to come for a few years see what it was like and then go back because I didn't want to leave home I didn't want to leave my family and can I Um, ask sorry to interrupt you but can I I presume that you were talking sort of in your early-ish 20s. Yes. Yeah. So okay. I was early. So still young. Early 20s. Yeah, still young. Okay, yeah. so you're making this big, big t- really big decision. Yes, yeah. early okay. on. So I left. Um, the people 
I came to this country in March, uh, middle of winter, and I didn't have a winter coat because I had no idea what cold was. March is middle of winter. It's our springtime. (laughs) (laughs) And I had a... I remember the lady from the uh, trust that came to pick us up. She said, where's your coat? And I said, well, I've got a sweater. And she just laughed. Okay, okay. Um, I went to work on a a general medical ward. Mm -hmm. And the people there embraced me like their own. I met a family there that have adopted me. And it's been years. And they are still my family. So when you you say you met a family, do you you mean the staff? So I'm a member of staff. And then they looked after you when you you first came? Looked after me emotionally. Yeah. um, Because I suppose they saw a young, you know, sort of young woman with no family yes, and it was yeah. um so that christmas they took me home and now we go home every christmas oh that's to, lovely to, to see them how nice um so during that time my plan was to work for yeah. a bit and go back but then i was looking at the nursing times uh mm-hmm. magazine one mm-hmm. day after a shift and there was as an, you do as you, as you do <laughs> students out there that's what you do after your shift you sit down you read the you journals read the yes journals. And there was an advertisement in there for a BSc Honours in Midwifery. Now, in Trinidad, you had to be a nurse to be a midwife, yes, to be a health visitor. So that ju- that was what your ultimate goal would be. Okay. So you do your nursing, then you do your midwifery, and then you do your health visiting to be that ultimate person okay. uh, in healthcare. And that's that was my dream as well. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to be a midwife, and I had applied in Trinidad before. But I didn't have five years' experience, and so I wasn't allowed to go on the course. Um, So I applied to two universities, and I was accepted on both. Um, And I chose uh, one. (laughs) So I chose to go to Surrey University, Mm -hmm. where I did my BSc honours in midwifery. Um, And during that time, uh, I got married and had a family and, and was working clinically for a few years. Again, loving it. And then you had to be nominated to be a supervisor of midwives yes. by your peers. Um, and I was nominated to do the course, Supervision of Midwives. Um, and I came to University of Hertfordshire to do yes. that in yes. 2008. So I started as a student here then. And I thought, I'll do this. I'm not doing any more studies after this because I felt like I'd been studying for a long time. I had two young children. Let me just check now. So you went to the University of Surrey to do your BSc. Where where were you living? So you've come now to the University of Hertfordshire. So where where were you living? So I came initially, I came as a nurse in Essex and then I studied at University of Hertfordshire. So I moved to Surrey, uh, sorry, University of Surrey. And I moved to Surrey then. Right. But... Um, I was pregnant with my first daughter while living in Surrey, but most of my family, who I who are now I, I see as my family, yeah. were back in Essex. So when I was pregnant with my first daughter, I moved back to Essex. Okay. And I spent most of my clinical career there. Okay. Um, and then I started studying at the University of Hertfordshire in so 2008. So you were travelling then? So I was travelling. Okay. Yes, I was That's commuting. But I was journey. doing my, yeah, it was um, uh, 2008-2009 supervision of midwives course. Um, so I started then. Again, one of the best things I had done, met people along the way who were so supportive, so inspiring. 
And it was that that really prompted me to go on again and further my uh, my education. You know, although I it was difficult at that time, you know, trying to raise a family, working, I was working full time, um, two young children. And I said, well, I'll do this, but then that's it, no yes. more. Yes, you seem to have said that before. I've said that. <laughs> that's it. Okay, no, okay. No more. Um, but the program lead um, at the time, still the program lead now, she came and talked to us about doing an MSc in midwifery. Mm-hmm. So we were uh, 60 credits for the supervision course, but then you could go on and do other modules that will get you. So this would be Sue Carr, would it? Sue Carr. So Sue Carr, yeah, who's, who's one of our academics. Yes, so she's, yeah. she's come in and persuaded yeah, you persuaded what a me. wonderful opportunity this would be yes. to go on, keep studying, go on, do your master's. Yes. yes. And I said, not a chance. Um, and I went back. <laughs> I went back to work, yes. uh, minding my own business. Yes. Um, but then again, opportunities for funding came up uh-huh. via the LSA at the time. So the local supervising authority um, was supporting supervisors of midwives to carry on and yeah. and finish. You know, go on studying and finish their masters. So I thought, oh, all right then. So I did it slowly but surely, modular. And there was one time I was doing the high dependency midwifery care course here, and I looked up, and it was Sue again, so <laughs> um, who was who was like in front of the class at the time, and I felt really inspired. I thought, you know what, this is what I wanted to do. At that time, I was also the practice development midwife okay. in my unit, so I was already yes. teaching, yes, um, yeah. teaching staff and and junior doctors um, on their emergency drills and skills and things like that. So I went to see the group lead at the time yes. um, and just ask her if there were any jobs going, yes. just randomly out of the blue, yes. walked in. So this is for an academic job now? This was for an academic so you're, job. So you've, you've been here as a student uh, and, and you, you love it so much, <laughs> but you've, you've, you've suddenly realised there's, there's, a, there's a possibility of another opportunity for you yeah. and you just go and ask. So I just push the door open and yeah, say... Yeah, just exactly that. I was anything. in the room opposite her. Yeah. And I was jokingly saying to my friend, I wonder what you needed to have to um, work here. Yes. Because I quite yeah. like that. You yeah. know, it looks interesting. It looks like me. It looks like it will suit mm. me. And she said, I think it really would. Let's go and ask. And I said, no, I was only joking. She said, no, let's go. So she dragged <laughs> me along. Yes. We knocked on the door. We went together. And we asked. And at that time, there was a vacancy. Now, in academia, vacancies come up very sort of few and far between. Yes. And at that time, they were just advertising for one. It's just about how, and for me, I just look back and think about how opportunities, I felt like they were just coming up, you know. It was yeah. there. It was fate almost, yes. you know. Yes. And um, I applied for the job. Uh, and I, as far as I know, and what I've heard is that, there were um, there was a lot of interest in the job, but I was offered the job, yes. and and I started working here at the UH in two thousand thirteen. I remember when you started. Yes, <laughs> I remember that. Came okay, so you 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 made the transition. Yeah, came into academia. So a, a step away from your professional practice. Yes, um, and then since you've been here, so yeah. What, what so then? I was commuting. I was living in Essex at the time, and I was commuting. 
my um, daughter, the 16-year-old, was ju- she was um, going into year six and she had to make choices for secondary school. And I thought, I can't be here and there at the same time. Yes. So I made the decision to uproot my family and move to Hartford. I like the way you say you made the decision to yes. uproot your family. <laughs> I'm sure there was some discussion about Yes, the there was. But right, you're yeah, very persuasive, Radhika. And uh, I'm sure you flashed them that smile and said, yeah. family, this is going to be great this for is... everyone. But it, it also the was. was clearly right yes. for everyone. Because at the time as well, where we were living, the I didn't feel that the secondary schools, I felt my, my daughters could have, I don't know. You wanted to see them flourish? Yes, and even their own teachers, yeah, even their own teachers said, you know, that. Um, And I came here and my colleagues were so supportive in helping me with the move because I didn't know Hertfordshire. And my colleagues came up and we started talking. The biggest thing for me was to live somewhere where there were good schools um, because it wasn't just about me then. It was about... Get, you know, giving my kids the best opportunities, what I feel I had when I was little, you know, and I had support. And so I wanted that for them. And yeah, one of my colleagues said, oh, you know, she had four boys and they went to this very nice school. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I moved there yeah. and my daughters got into to the schools there. And I mean, you make it, you make it sound relatively easy of course we all know and anyone else who's moved house knows while you continue to work and look after a family moving to a completely new area as well and uprooting everyone writing my MSc dissertation okay you're writing your MSc dissertation too it's a huge amount of change there so I'm I'm in awe of anybody who can manage that keep those plates spinning it's such a difficult time and you, you you say that people helped you and people were very willing I'm sure to share what they knew about the airing and and, and help you sort of settle in as quick as possible. But nevertheless, it is still a big thing to do, isn't it? So another upheaval for you, but all in a good way, and all, and all to get you and your family where you wanted to be. And you clearly are passionate about your daughter's education and mm-hmm. them having those opportunities. So you get them settled into a school. Settled into a school. You're settled into your job. Ho- yes. Hopefully everyone can stand still for a little bit. Yes. Just everything settles down again. Settles down okay. beautifully. So here you are. Everybody. The move was the best thing we right. had done as a family for us. Um, the girls settled into their schools beautifully, made lifelong friends. I was loving it here. Yes. Uh, working. Um, I did my um, CPAD, so I yes. started to do my okay, CPAD. Okay, so that's your training for anyone that doesn't know CPAD. is your is the, the training that we do here, the staff development, to qualify you as a teacher, teacher. and as a uh, a teacher of nurses or midwives, um, at, at the same for all our other professions, radiography, paramedics, social, etc. You have to be a qualified teacher in, all, in, in order to teach your students, students. And, and the professionals of the future, don't you? So yeah. you, you've done your MSc, you do your CPAD as well, yeah. okay? Yeah. And you don't sit and twiddle your thumbs then? No, well, things were going too good <laughs> at that time. So I thought, right, what can I do now? Yes. Um, but also, I feel like I didn't go looking for these things. Mm. I felt like um, the opportunity, again, I saw something come up about doctoral studies. Yes. And I thought, ooh, that yeah. sounds interesting. So I go and talk to a few people, you included. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. I can remember um, those conversations, yes. yes. So talking, you know, letting you know what my, my uh, circumstances are yeah. and wondering can I do this? You know, I'm sure it's not easy. Can I do this? 
again, raising a family, working full time. Uh, my master's was as difficult as it was, you know, going going on to do more studies. Um, but the doctoral um, doctorate in health research was fit my lifestyle rather than a PhD route because it was cohort based and you had that support from. Okay. So this is the one that we hear called the DHRS, the short DHRS, don't we? But it's one of our own doctoral programs in the school. So that felt like it was the right fit for you. It felt, although I felt like I wouldn't have been able to do it otherwise. Yeah, so that's, um, so started the DHRS in 2015. And then that again was one of the most exciting times, meeting lots of different people, you know, finding out, I think you find out a lot about yourself on the DHRS and lots of other people from other professions from within the school as well. So, you know, I met diagnostic radiotherapy lecturers and clinical uh, staff, uh, other nurses of all the different branches. In my group, there's a physiotherapist. So meeting all the different people, but you have that one goal, that goal of wanting to know more about something. My passion had always been sick women, uh, uh, women's health yes. and it just so, felt like so this brought this brought you to a place where actually you could really explore that passion so to have the luxury it's not the luxury of thinking about it, but it's being allowed permission yeah. isn't it to, to really to really find deeply out more. really yes yeah. really find out more yeah. really think deeply about the things yeah. that matter to you yeah. I and mean, that's yeah. a huge privilege in higher education is it? and doing a doctoral study like all the studies that lead up to it are all about you exploring your passions and your interests and finding out what makes you tick as a person as well as as a practitioner. And the doctorate is the pinnacle of that, isn't it? It, it brings everything together Everything together. Yes. And it almost makes me think back of where it all started. You know, I feel like, you know, stopping at the minimum, you know, my, you know I felt like I, you were never meant to come out of, of you know, where I was. Yeah minimum GCSE and now I'm on the highest academic pathway Uh, it's not been easy but it's been you know worthwhile it's it's been an amazing journey also my work-wise being the admissions tutor I work really closely with the admissions tutors from all the other programs in the school and you know their support and how we think the same way and we have the same goal we all want, you know, students to have an amazing experience. We all want to bring in the right type of students into the professions because we're not only thinking about the university, but, you know, healthcare as a whole. Yeah, yeah. Um, we work very closely together to, to make sure that that standard yeah. is maintained. And that's lovely to hear how you're putting back into the profession, aren't you, you and your colleagues, you know, and as you say, thinking about the professionals of the future. Looking after nurturing your own career is not selfish in any way. It is everything about being better at what you do, which enables you to be in a better place to support other, to support people, other people, both your peers and those new students coming in. So that it's, um, it's a wonderful kind of circular thing that we do to try and continually feed the professionals of the future. And, and then, you know, you, your colleagues that are out there in practice and all that they do for, for patients and service users and for mothers um, it is all of it knits together somehow, doesn't yeah. it? In this big thing that we're part of, all of us. It's lovely to hear about the story, and it makes it. It's very personal to think, you know, about your starting as a little girl in the Caribbean, and this the doors that have opened mm-hmm. for you. Not not been opened for you necessarily. Sometimes you've pushed at them, haven't mm-hmm. you? 
Sometimes people have been in the right place or you've been in the right place at the right time. But you are a person who has gone out and looked for those opportunities. Mm. You get a real sense of that, that you could have held back. You could have said no. You could have not got out of your chair and pushed open the door and said, Is there any, are there any jobs here? Yeah. <laughs> I shall think of you doing that now. <laughs> but that seems to be what's made the difference mm. for you, that you have been prepared to take those opportunities. Mm. I want to ask you, sort of now at the end um, and that's your that's your life story probably only a snippet of it condensed isn't it I mean we've, we've touched across it but at the end I'd just like to ask you thinking about the people that are listening we've got hopefully staff and students listening what what messages you might give out to other people listening mm-hmm. that you've learned and that you'd like to share I think one of my biggest things is to believe in yourself mm-hmm. that you can do this I think very little time during that that journey I thought oh I don't think I can do this and even when I did it's about um, leaning on on the support networks you know there were people around me who kept saying you can do this and you know the praise and and it's very important that positive reinforcement and I think it's about recognizing when opportunities are there you know I do feel I have worked hard to be where I am but also that recognizing the opportunities um, and then taking it, seeing them as opportunities yeah. and then taking that and not being scared, I think. You definitely do that. You must be a wonderful role model, not, not just for your peers and for your students, but also for your daughters. <laughs> and I'm going to wish you every luck with your doctoral studies are very exciting and you are really reaching the exciting part of us now. So I really look forward to it you know, hearing what your research outcomes are and whatever is next for Radhika. Good luck to you. It's lovely and lovely to talk to you today. Thank you so much, Thank you, Julie. Thank you. Wow, what can I say? Radhika, what a beautiful and empowering message you have shared with our listeners. I'm sure our listeners, especially HSK students who are just starting there, careers are going to find your message so inspiring. Listening to you as Julie mentioned in your chat, you make all these challenging achievements seem so easy to achieve. You have shown us how to believe in ourselves, keep looking out for opportunities, keep going and to never stop dreaming for higher goals. Your midwifery journey message is also an inspiration to many staff. Radhika, thank you so much for the wonderful and empowering message you have shared with us today. We wish you good luck in your doctorate and I'm sure we shall soon be seeing Dr. Radhika Hardy. It's always a pleasure to have you, our special guests on the HSK Student Pod. Don't forget our fantastic jury for your skillful approach that you use to guide our guests in painting for us their shared message. We do enjoy listening to your interviews. Thanks, Julie. I wish to thank our guests, Julie, Uche, Leondas, and Radka, for the good messages you have shared with us today. It's always a pleasure to have you on the HSK Student Pod. I also need to thank Aiden and the following students who took part in this episode's voice pops. Laura S., Tozin O., Jean M., Jed A., Shia S., studying adult nursing, Lorraine B., studying public health nursing, and Mina K., studying children nursing. Thank you all. We have enjoyed listening to your voice pops. 
And don't forget Anthony Hapland for all your technical support. Thank you, Anthony. Now, before we come to the end of this podcast, I know we are so busy and there's a lot going on in HSK, especially being able to accommodate the demands of placements, lectures, assignments, and home life, including so many other things that need our time. I need to remind you of the support there is for you in the school and in the wider university. I encourage you to make most of the resources and support you are being offered. Please, do not sit in silence. There are always people willing to listen to your needs. On that note, if you have not yet done so, I really need to encourage you to go and make use of the wonderful resource called the HSK Academic Skills Advice Site, which we often call the ASA site. This is a brilliant site that will help you to develop your academic study skills and it includes resources tailored specifically for health and social work professions. This is a site that will help you make that positive step in getting good grades in your assignments. Your module site should now have a direct link to the SA site. I encourage you to bookmark this site, which will make it easy for you whenever you want to access it, especially when you are working on your assignments or projects. On this site, you can also book one-to-one academic support sessions, which many students have found to be very helpful. However, these are in high demand, so do not leave your support request to the last minute. Please, if you have not yet done so, do not forget to sign up to the HSK Student Podcast so that you can receive new episodes automatically. This can be done by downloading and installing the SoundCloud app, which is a free app that will give you easy access to the podcast episodes. Those who have iPhones can also get access to the podcast through the iTunes download list. I also need to encourage you to remind five friends of yours to listen to this episode. By doing this, you are doing your part to help build the HSK staff student community. Please, do get in touch if you've got an idea or message you would want to share with our listeners. Nothing is too small to be shared. Just send an email to richardonr.matovo2 at hearts.ac.uk That is r dot m a t for Thomas o v 2 Then you write a number 2 at hearts.ac.uk Alternatively, please feel free to pop in room 2F267 which is located at the top floor of the right building. We are always delighted to hear from our listeners. I know there are many of you who are going to placements or still on placements and many of you are working so hard on your assignments or research projects. I wish you good luck on your placements and in your current or future assignments. Lastly, I just need to say look after yourselves, keep warm and I hope everything you do in November goes well for you. Bye bye from Richard your host and join us in our next HSK Student Pod which will have something fresh and new to listen to.